Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Hi, Stephen Price here. Just a warning, this podcast contains violence and quite a bit of bad language, so take care of yourself while you're listening. Criminal trials can be confusing. The lawyers question a procession of witnesses. The jury sees photographs, documents, exhibits. Facts pile up and jumble against each other. Something seems true, then it seems doubtful. Sometimes it's hard to tell what the point is. What's the story? The thing to remember is that everything the lawyers do in the trial, everything, is to lay the groundwork for their closing speeches. Lawyers, like many authors, write their stories backwards from the end. It's the end, the violent shooting at the hand of a friend, or the tragic murder in a drug deal, that tells the lawyers what scenes matter, what motives apply, what evidence counts, and what evidence is irrelevant. Because, as law professor Richard Sherwin says, Storytelling is the art of leaving things out. Two other American scholars, Anthony Amsterdam and Jerome Bruno, put it like this, and this might strike you as really strange, but also maybe profound. Stories construct facts that comprise them. So with that, here we are back in courtroom number one in Wellington for the closing addresses. This is where it all comes together. This is where the lawyers fill up the murky uncertainty that lies at the heart of any criminal trial, the gap between what we know for sure and what we need to know to be certain of guilt. They fill it up with a story, a story that stitches together the disparate pieces of evidence as smoothly and convincingly as they can, showcasing the best evidence for them and bolting past the worst. They make their story vivid, sympathetic, and the ending inevitable. So they'll appeal to logic. There wasn't time for David to drive here or burn the body there. David doesn't tell police about his driving south of Bull, so logically he's hiding something. Because we find logic convincing. But that's not enough, because we're not really moved by logic. It leaves us cold. It's hard to remember. What moves us is story, and that's not always about logic. It's about what feels right, what makes sense. It's about what feels familiar because what feels familiar also feels true. That's why lawyers' stories, maybe all stories, play into a soup of beliefs in our heads about how things work in the real world, the little biases we think of as common sense, the things we learn from parents, movies, the classroom, the schoolyard, and maybe, most especially, from crime shows. We'll hear the lawyers appeal to stereotypes and stock stories, the ingenious cops, the violent drug dealers, the wrongly accused, the dishonest builder, the frame-up, the trail of clues, the bumbling police, the best friend, honest confessions. These things fit with our pictures of the world. They're easy to remember. They feel true. They make sense of the action. They move us. But unlike logic, there's no guarantee that they move us in the right direction. 
When you think about it, at least one side in every criminal trial is employing these tools of story in ways that deceive us. Anyway, members of the jury at home, that's where we are now. We've seen the fights over disclosure, met the witnesses, heard the legal arguments. Now the lawyers are going to tell their best stories because stories let us make sense of all that messy evidence and make a comparison and give a judgment. Without stories, there can be no verdict. Which story will you believe? I'm Stephen Price and this is Mr Little Meets Mr Big, the podcast where we ask whether police can use a story to get to the truth about a murder. After nine weeks of trial, it's time for the competing stories to go head to head. And if that is the case, then David Little, without any shadow of a doubt, lied about seeing Brett Hall alive and well on Sunday. And the thing about that story is it's fiction. And that's what it was. That was the story. And that's still the story being peddled in this courtroom. If the story can't be right, it's over. Clearly. Isn't that common sense? Here's Michelle Wilkinson-Smith for The Crown. When Brett Hall went missing in May 2011, David Little, this defendant, was not the focus of any police sting. He was not the focus of any police suspicion. He wasn't tricked or manipulated by police back in 2011 on day one when they arrived. He became a focus. And he became a focus because what he was saying didn't add up. The police didn't fixate on David Little and immediately size him up for a Mr Big Sting. They didn't really suspect him at all, but they started to get suspicious when he started behaving suspiciously. And the more questions the police asked, the more it didn't add up. David Little killed Brett Hall on the Friday, and he had a crafty plan to cover his tracks. First, he'd wrap the body and bundle it into his car. Then he'd take Brett's guns, leave the caravan open, put out an empty rifle case, and move Brett's quad bike up the hill by the bush. And that scene, as it's staged, might as well have had a big sign up saying, I'm off using a gun. Then, a couple of days later, he'd pretend to go fishing, drive to the coast and bury the body, then drive back up to Pitangi. He could check the crime scene and pretend that he'd had a couple with Brett while he did a bit of work on the house. He'd say Brett's quad bike was down at the campsite while he was there. When Brett was found missing, David Little would say, Brett must have got lost hunting. And for added cover, he'd start whispering about local drug dealers who might have wanted to pay off a drug debt with a bullet. It was a plan that might just have worked, except that three things went wrong. The first was that Brett's son Damien visited on Saturday. He found the caravan open, the rifle case out, and the quad bike up the hill. This was unlucky for David Little, because this is pretty much exactly how the campsite looked five days later when the police arrived to investigate Brett's disappearance. And what are the chances, members of the jury, that it is so unchanged if Brett Hall had been at that campsite after Damien visited? If he'd been off hunting on Saturday, wouldn't he have moved his stuff when he got back, closed the caravan, put away the rifle case? Not if he was already dead. And if that is the case, then David Little, without any shadow of a doubt, lied about seeing Brett Hall alive and well on Sunday. And if you get there, 
then David Little is guilty because you don't lie about seeing a dead man. It gets worse for David Little. Here's the second problem. Remember he said the quad bike was at the campsite with Brett when he visited on Sunday? It wasn't. The Sergeant Major of the New Zealand Army tracked that bike. He is one of the foremost tracking experts in the country. And he was adamant that there was a single track leading to the quad and the quad hadn't moved or turned around in the area in the previous 10 days. So Brett couldn't have driven it up where it was when Brett's son Damien visited on Saturday, then down again so it was there when David Little visited on Sunday, then up again where the police found it three days later. It went up and it stayed up. If it was there on Saturday, David Little couldn't have seen it at the campsite on Sunday. He must have lied. The third problem for David Little was a CCTV camera mounted on a hotel in Bulls. This is all about David Little's strange driving in the early hours of Sunday before he went up to Pitangi. Remember, he told police he got up early to go fishing. But access to his fishing spots was blocked, so he said he'd killed time round Turakina before heading up to the campsite. You can see him driving back and forth around Turakina on CCTV around then. But shortly after 5.30am, he disappears for two hours. He told police he never went south of Turakina. Then he was confronted with more CCTV filmed at 7.30am showing him coming into Bulls, which is south of Turakina. What's more, he was coming from the south into Bulls. He's then shown a photo of his car in Bulls, and he accepts that it's his car. And he's asked, so did you go there? And David Little says, I actually don't recall going there, but yeah, must have. Detective Humphrey said, well, you did, David. He said, I'm just trying to work out why. Detective Humphrey said, I think you know why. David Little said, I, can, I tell you right now, I haven't done anything to Brett. I have not hidden the body, I tell you honestly. Now, nobody was accusing David Little of hiding the body at that point in the Sunday morning drive. Police had no idea at all that he's been driving around with the body in the back of his car for two days. They're talking really about the firearms. But that's what's in David Little's mind. I wasn't hiding the body. Shortly after that interview, David Little comes back to the police and says, Oh yeah, I remember now. I was doing some four-wheel driving under the bridge at Bulls. Do you really forget that? And if he didn't forget it, he's lied about it. And why would he lie? His movements on the Sunday morning are completely inexplicable, unless he is hiding something. And the Crown says the only reason he was four-wheel driving around the coast in the early hours of the Sunday morning was to find a place or places to bury a body. That's not all of David Little's suspicious behaviour. For one thing, he was surprisingly open with the police about Brett's guns and his drug dealing. Brett was on probation, remember. Brett is still thought to be a hunter missing in the bush. David Little is telling police all sorts of information that would send Brett Hall back to jail. And the Crown says that that, as a matter of logic, is because David Little knows that Brett Hall is not coming out of that bush. And about those guns... David Little tells police that Brett has two guns hidden up at Pitangi, a .22 and a .223, and they're illegal. But he says he doesn't know how Brett got them. Later, he admits he bought them for Brett. Police ask him where they are, and he says he wants to talk to his lawyer first. Had he taken them? He must have. 
During the undercover operation three years later, it was David Little who brought up that he could get his hands on a .22 and a .223. It, he takes Nick to the Fielding Cemetery and he retrieves ammunition, an imitation silencer and a cleaning kit. And he takes him to the Halcombe Cemetery and they look for guns. How does it benefit David Little to tell Nick he could get some guns if he didn't genuinely believe that he could? If he thought that promising to deliver guns he didn't actually have was somehow a good thing, is it just a coincidence that he chose two guns of the same calibre that are missing from Pitangi? So David Little killed Brett, took his guns, and set up the scene to look like Brett had gone hunting. And he did it because of the building project. David Little was ripping Brett Hall off, or at the very least, David, uh, Brett Hall was absolutely sure that David Little was ripping him off. Brett was so angry, he told his brother he was going to give David a dong, a hiding. He confronted David, forced him to pay back some money, picked up some building materials himself. The building inspector was coming to check the framework. If it passed, Brett would want David to close up the house. Which meant windows. But David Little didn't have the windows. And Brett Hall wasn't paying any more money. And David Little didn't have any money. And what would happen when Brett Hall found out about that? That's David Little's motive. To kill Brett before things came to a head over the house. And remember, he told Mr Big he'd had a brawl with Brett and he was worried that Brett might come back and kill him first. Now, you might be thinking about those drug texts. Do they make you think Brett might have been killed in a drug deal? They shouldn't. This is unrelated drug activity, nothing to do with Brett Hall. Whatever went wrong happened by about noon on Sunday, maybe much earlier, and the dealer's cell phones show they're in Palmerston North and Martin when David Little says he's having a couple with Brett on Sunday morning at Pitangi. So if Brett's still alive then, he wasn't killed in that drug deal. Sure, there were some car sightings at Pitangi on Sunday, but what do we really know about them? Is it the right day? Is it the right time? And even if it is, where does it get you? you all you could do is speculate. You have to go back to the evidence against David Little. Because this doesn't tell you anything. It's meant to make you a bit scared, perhaps. Even if one of those drivers was trying to do a drug deal with Brett and drove up to the campsite, what would he have found? A completely deserted campsite. That's what he would have found. Don't get carried away by those informants who said Brett was killed in a drug deal. Sounds quite sort of um, important, informant information. There's gossip innuendo. There were rumours flying. So we've got enough pieces of the jigsaw to be sure that David Little killed Brett. The lies about the guns, taking Nick to the cemeteries to find the guns, the odd driving, the confessions, all of it. There might have been a drug deal, but that had nothing to do with Brett's death. What I say to you is you have, you do have the full story, and these, these things the defence are pointing to, they're pieces of a different puzzle that the defence are trying to put into our puzzle to try and disrupt it. The clincher is what David Little said after he was arrested. He's at the police station. He is cautioned. He is charged with murder. He's told he's been the subject of an undercover operation and police have been listening to him. He doesn't have to say anything at all, but he does choose to say something. He says, if you heard what I said to those guys, you will know it was self-defense. Now, the plain English meaning of what he said was that he did not deny killing Mr. Hall. He sought to justify it. 
Look at what David Little said to the prison officers. And they were, it seems, quite surprised. Most people on remand deny the offender. They said to him, did, did they get the right guy? Yeah, I was going to confess or hand myself and it's been three years. Imagine being in that position, falsely accused. Would you say that when asked by a prison officer? Yeah, I, I, I was going to confess anyway. Where does that leave the Mr Big Sting? What should we think about that? Well, first up, it's not your job to worry about whether it was fear on David Little. Obviously, undercover operations involve subterfuge. That is the whole purpose of them. And I think that Mr Samson will get up and tell you it's a scam and it's unconscionable and how could they do it? Well, that is not, obviously, your issue. Because the law in New Zealand permits undercover operations of this nature. You don't need to decide whether it should or it shouldn't, it does. Yes, it does create incentives. But they are incentives to be honest. And yes, there are cases of false confessions. But the fact that people have in the past made false confessions, in sometimes very different circumstances, um, doesn't tell you what happened in this case. Actually, quite a lot of David Little's confession to Mr Big lines up with the facts, like the placement of the quad bike by the bush. And there are some things in the confession, like David cutting up the body, that were different to what police told him they suspected. True, though, he got some facts wrong. There is some hyperbole, some exaggeration in the account David Little gave to the undercover officers. The body wasn't where he told them it was, but maybe that's not surprising. Perhaps, perhaps he couldn't remember because it was pitch black and dark and difficult to find. Maybe, but maybe also he had a reluctance to tell them where the body was. And that's an understandable reluctance because it is so dangerous for him. So actually, you don't need to worry about what David Little said to Mr Big. So I'm not going to try and tell you what to make of those admissions. Whoa, hang on. We don't need to think about the Mr Big confession? Well, remember, there are three strands in the Crown's case. The first and third strands are so powerful that we don't need the Mr Big sting to convict. We've got all the rest. Like his odd driving and statements to police in 2011. His claim just after he was arrested that it was self-defence. And then what he said to the prison officers when he thought the game was up. When he thought he was caught. No more point in denying it. David Little, members of the jury, murdered Brett Hall. That's what really happened. The drug killing, just as David Little had told Scott, was the story he made up to cover up his crime. And that's what it was. That was the story. And that's still the story being peddled in this courtroom. Of course, the defence says the drug killing isn't just a story. It's what happened. It's the Crown who's spinning a story about David Little being a murderer. Here's Christopher Stevenson. Dave Little saw his mate on Sunday morning. Brett Hall was alive on Sunday. Dave got up early, which wasn't unusual for him. He loved fishing, and that's what he tried to do that Sunday morning. CCTV shows him zipping back and forth past Turukina as he tried unsuccessfully to get to the beach. Later, he heads up to Pitangi to put some finishing touches on Brett's house frame. He wants to finish the house, because then Brett's going to pay him thousands of dollars, and he needed the money. While he's there, he sees Brett Hall, and he speaks to him, and he has a couple with him. Dave's cell phone shows he left about 10. So he's gone. He's gone at 10, and then there is a flurry of activity. 
Remember, Brit Hawk's meant to be dead. What's going on? It must be the drug deal Brett told Damien and Dave about. Three witnesses saw cars up there that day. Two of the cars were linked to a local drug dealing family. The witnesses also saw people and one of them looked something like Brett. The three of them who saw vehicles on the Pitangi track on Sunday, after Dave left, are seeing the drug deal roll out. And that drug deal saw the end of Brett Hall. Something happened to Brett Hall over that period, Sunday, Sunday night, Monday morning. And the last words anyone heard from him were those that Tracy Morehouse heard on Monday morning. Tracy Morehouse heard a cry from Brett's campsite on Monday morning. She says she doesn't think it was a goat, and she's heard plenty of them around there. She said to her mother, it was deeper than a goat. It was a man's voice. She didn't hear screeches. She heard words. Hey, hey, help, help. On her evidence alone, you can be absolutely sure that Breton Hall was alive and Dave had nothing to do with his disappearance. Brett might have got a bit annoyed with Dave over the building, perhaps irrationally because he was taking meth. But they were getting on fine by the time these events rolled round. The neighbour saw them happily together. Brett's probation officer said Brett was excited that things were back on track. The evidence shows that Dave was doing a pretty good job for Brett, not ripping him off. And if he'd spent some of the money Brett gave him for building materials on his own living expenses, well, that would come out of Dave's own pocket at the end of the day. Remember, he was charging a fixed price of $70,000 all up. And if Brett died, Dave wouldn't see any of that. Why would he want to kill him? I remind you again of the competing theories here. Um, on the one hand, Bretton Hall met his fake drug dealing, and we heard evidence about the spate of drug and especially methamphetamine-related murders that that happens and it's not irregular. Or on the other hand, lifelong friends having some dispute, and we don't accept there was a dispute, but let's just say, this is the prosecution theory, a dispute over building progress. One of them kills the other. What seems more likely to you? Dave has no history of violence. And when Brett went missing, Dave was helpful to police. So helpful, he gave statement after statement. Might Dave have got Brett into trouble for breaching parole by telling police about Brett's guns? Well, police were pressing him for information. So it's very unfair to suggest that um, somehow him trying to help police is consistent with guilt. All he was doing was trying to help police and give them the full picture of what was going on in terms of Brett and drugs and firearms. Dave gives a long videotaped interview to Detective Humphrey, who tells him his theory that David Little was the murderer. Remember what the detective was saying to Dave. I believe you're responsible for whatever happened to Brett on Friday. I think you returned and staged the quad bike. On Saturday you bought plastic bags. I think you burnt something in the fire on Friday. I'm saying you went somewhere south of Turrikina. Could have included Scotts Ferry. 
somebody's gone there on Sunday and burnt something to destroy evidence. And there are the seeds of Dave Little's later confession. Now Dave knows how the police think it happened. That's where the story he later tells Mr Big was born. Now, you remember the Crown tried to make something of Dave's driving on Sunday morning, talking about missing two hours. But it's all pretty straightforward. That he hasn't been able to get into the beach. He knows he can't get up to the Pitangi track while it's dark. He's got to burn some time. He's driving around. And he would have gone towards Halcom left, and he's under the bridge at Bulls. Did he tell some different stories about that trip? Did it take him months to remember he'd been four-wheel driving under the bridge? Well, his memory's not great. Whose is? He's a heavy drinker. He knocked back a couple of tinnies that morning. He got it broadly right. Maybe it's the same with the quad bike. Maybe it wasn't back at the campsite. He's just remembering where it normally was. Anyway, all this wasn't enough for police to charge him with murder back then. But you need to remember, in 2011, David Little wasn't charged because there was no evidence to charge him. Only thing that has changed in this case is some words that have come out of Dave Little's mouth in pretty extraordinary circumstances. In other words, the Mr Big Sting. These operations are about getting confessions. Police decide they know somebody is guilty and they send them off to this um, confession production unit. That's what it is. That's what it's all about. Let's just be frank. That's what it's about. Scott and Nick exploited things that were close to Dave's heart. They thought they were his mates. They gave him respect, looked up to him, promised him a new car, trips to the Gold Coast, big paydays. Remember all the things they were telling him? The thing about Scott, he's just like so generous. Nothing's a problem for him. He looks after you. I'm not ashamed to admit it, mate. I love Scott. Get the nod. Get the nod. I remember my meeting with Scott, says CJ, when I made it. It's a life-changing moment. Like winning lotto every day. It's like having a hundred Christmases at once. So there's Dave Little, struggling to pay the bills, selling fundraising chocolate for the school, putting off jobs so he can work for Scott. His kid's saying, Dad, did you get the job? That's the build-up. That's what's been going on. That's what's on offer. But even so, even with all those incentives, Dave tells Scott... He didn't kill Brett. I can tell you honestly, I did not do it. I just happened to be in the wrong time at the wrong place. And I told the police the truth and they just turned it around on me. But then Scott doesn't believe him. That's not acceptable. And he's given the very clear message, you're out, mate. You're not getting in. Your life is not going to change. Because Scott says... That's not what Lee tells me. Lee's the corrupt cop. Remember, the pretend corrupt cop. I know what the police think. He says, I trust Lee a thousand percent. And that's not what I'm being told. Dave figures he's not going to get the nod. And you know what? He's right. We know that from the police's notes made before the meeting. If police don't achieve their objective of a confession, Scott's going to tell him, I can't have people who aren't completely honest. That's what the plan was. If he sticks to his police version, i.e. I'm innocent, uh, then he'll be given the clear message, you're not getting in. The job, the Porsche, the friends, the money, it's all on the line. What 
do you get when you pay? I respectfully submit to you, you can't pay for the truth. When you introduce money, you get what the person paying wants to hear. You get what the person being paid thinks they have to say to get the money. What can he tell Scott? He knows well what police think, doesn't he? Because back in 2011, Mr Humphreys put all these allegations to him. He just parrots that out. With a few add-ons, that's essentially the story he gives Scott. So Dave comes up with a story Scott wants to hear. And the thing about that story is it's fiction. And if it's fiction, if it doesn't square with the known facts, then it can't be a true confession. If the story can't be right, it's over. Clearly. Isn't that common sense? The body parts weren't there. The hole in the beach couldn't have been that big. The drive to Himatangi was impossible. If he tried to bury a body at Santoff Forest, soldiers who were training there would have seen him. The blade wasn't in the river. The fire couldn't have been burned for three days. There was no blood at the campsite or his clothes or his car, which hadn't been washed. David's story was literally full of holes. And was there a body in the back of his car on that Sunday morning? Look at the CCTV footage. What can you see in the back? Remember Dave said he was going fishing? We know that um, when his vehicle was picked up, there was at least one big old chilli bin in the back. What can you see in the back of that car and why has nobody looked at it? Two chilli bins in the back of that car. That is case-ending evidence. The whole murder thing was just a story Dave Little dredged up to get in the gang. Any time you check out the story, it falls over. But you know what does fit much better with the facts? A drug killing by Mr Pike and his crew. There were multiple separate sources pointing to him as having gotten debted to Bretton Hall and disappearing him. There were two separate police informants who said Mr Pike's crew members admitted they'd killed Brett. One of them had lied to the police about where he was that weekend. There's the guy who seemed to know all about Brett's buried drugs and all about the swag of money Mr Pike owed Brett, who said Mr Pike's gang had killed Brett. There's the drug deal, maybe two drug deals, going down that weekend. Texts about how things had got ugly. Cars connected to drug dealers up at Pitangi on the Sunday. Remember the cross-examination of Detective Sergeant Gleeson? You have these different sources of information sort of pointing all in the same direction and being fair and reasonable right and keeping an open mind and not having tunnel vision. It's a cogent picture, isn't it, pointing that way? Mr Gleeson said, it leads that way. It leads that way. But police didn't check it out properly. They didn't even interview one of Mr Pike's crew who'd confessed to an informant or the guy who said Brett had been killed in a drug deal. And again and again, they failed to turn over evidence relevant to the defence. It's the best evidence you could possibly have of tunnel vision. The stuff that doesn't fit with your theory just goes away to the sides. So why did Dave, after he was arrested and told about the Mr Big Sting, tell Detective Sergeant Gleeson it was self-defence? He was just being sarcastic. But he's trying to belittle what he said. You didn't even get anything from me. The thing I made up's no good to you anyway. Why did he tell the prison guards that the police had got the right guy and he was going to confess anyway? 
Well, maybe he didn't say that. One of the guards was asked about it earlier in the trial. And he said this was his, his answer. Dave said he knew this day would come. What it is consistent with, though, is Dave having been hounded, being told he's going to get 18 years, right? He says, I, I knew this day would come. They would not let me go. They were obsessed with me. And even if he did say more than that, if he did go on and say police had got the right guy, it wouldn't be surprising. There were dangerous people in jail, and he'd have to mix with them. He's just trying to cope. You do it, yeah, you know, whatever he said, some sort of false bravado. He, he doesn't care what he's saying. This is not going to anyone. He's now got to cope. He's now got to survive getting thrown into jail. It was just another story. David Little gets thrown in these pressure cooker situations, the building jobs where he's falling behind, the Mr Big meeting, the prison, and he pulls out a story to deal with them. Only this time, he's trapped in it. And some drug dealers who killed Brett have gotten away with murder. Justice Mellon sums up the case, outlining the arguments and telling the jury their job is to decide whether they're sure of guilt beyond reasonable doubt. She warns them that confessions can be false, and Mr Big Stings can lead to false confessions. And then... Thank you, members of the jury. You may now consider your verdict. What is your verdict, members of the jury? I don't want to tell you what you should think, but I've been leading you through this for 11 episodes now, so I probably owe it to you to tell you what I think. You're not going to like it. I'm not at all convinced by David Little's supposed confession to Mr Big. It's too full of bullshit. But when I think about David Little's confession to the prison guards and his claim to the police that it was self-defence, I find that's much harder to dismiss. Maybe, though, I'm mesmerised by those confessions. I might be prepared to buy his explanation for his very odd driving on the Sunday morning, but what about the CCTV footage that put him south of Bulls and then his very late and very convenient explanation about going four-wheel driving? Then, what about the guns? I can't believe David just pretended to have two guns that happened to be the same as the ones he bought for Brett, just so he could lead Nick on a wild goose chase in those cemeteries. He must have thought he did have them. And if so, there's got to be a fair chance that the .22 was the murder weapon. And then there's the fact that the campsite scene was essentially unchanged since Damien visited it on the Saturday. It doesn't make sense that Brett Hall came back, slept the night, saw David the next morning then headed off again, leaving the caravan open and the rifle case out in exactly the same place and the quad bike back on the hill in exactly the same place. Besides, the evidence was fairly convincing that the quad bike hadn't been moved since Saturday. And if Brett didn't move the quad bike and didn't come back to the campsite after Friday, that'd mean David lied about seeing Brett on the Sunday. And why would he lie except to cover up his guilt? When I think about those things, I think, he must have done it. He must have. And then I think about all the evidence of the drug dealing, the cars up at Pitangi, the apparent confessions of Mr Pike's crew. Surely a drug deal gone bad is more likely. That fits with those four chairs left out at Brett's campsite. Then there's the fact that there wasn't a speck of blood on David Little's car, even though it hadn't been cleaned. What about the CCTV showing what looked like chilli bins in the back of his car that Sunday morning? 
Doesn't seem like there was room for a body there. And Tracy Morehouse saying she thought she heard a man crying for help on Monday. I think about those things and I think, there must be doubt. There has to be. I hold both of those thoughts in my head at the same time. It feels like I didn't in my early years at law school when I would settle down to read an appeal decision. I'd read the first judgment full of remorseless logic and steely certainty and I'd think, well, that's right, that makes sense, that must be the law. Then I'd read the dissenting judgment, a different judge, disagreeing, but equally convincingly, the same utter certainty, the same compelling logic, and I'd sit back and think, well, that's right too. That also makes complete sense. And then I'd be a bit baffled and the world would get a little fuzzier. That's what happens when you're in the grip of two very good stories. For some reason I don't really mind this confusion. It doesn't eat away at me. I like the contest of stories. It reminds me that a lot of the world is a contest of stories. With most of the important things in life, I think we should be looking for the most persuasive answers. But we shouldn't fool ourselves that we're dealing with truths. I know most of what there is to know about this case. But I still don't know the truth. Please place David Owen Little before the court. The jury's deliberated for nearly two days. Mr. Fourperson, please stand. The court's packed. I can feel the room's tension in my limbs. David Little's jaw is working. His family's in the gallery behind him, full of hope and dread. Brett's family's on the other side. Everyone's hushed. Members of the jury, have you reached a unanimous verdict that is one on which all 12 of you agree? Yes, we have. Everyone's watching the jury. On the one charge of murder, do you find the defendant guilty or not guilty? Guilty. That one word. All that's changed is words have come out of his mouth. But it changes everything. And nothing at all. Mr Little, in accordance with the jury's verdict, I enter a conviction for murder. I find it the strangest feeling. Flat, disappointed, jumbled. Wait, that's it? It's suddenly over. David Little looks stunned. He's at once the centrepiece of this trial and a bit player. He has a hurried chat with his lawyer and his wife, Helen, and he's taken away. Maybe it makes me a bad journalist, but I feel a powerful urge not to intrude on the families. Helen looks stricken. The children are there. What do you say? Everyone files out. But the experience feels incomplete. The sparse ritual of the verdict doesn't do justice to the intricacies, the highs and lows, the ambiguities of nine weeks of trial. It doesn't seem like it's big enough for the moment. I suddenly realise... This is what justice feels like for lots of people. Sad. Incomplete. A relief for one side and one family. Devastation for another. An ending. A judgement. But has anything actually changed? And, And here is the great lie of the trial. We expect it to give us the truth. But it only gives us a verdict. And maybe that's why it's a bit empty. I'm not saying the verdict is wrong. It's just that in some naive corner of my heart, I was hoping it would deliver a definitive answer. I wanted it to be like the Rugby World Cup with a clear victory. In reality, we may actually be further from the truth. Again, I'm not saying the verdict's wrong. Just that it puts an official stamp on what happened that doesn't capture the muddiness that still exists. 
But one story has triumphed after it was very rigorously tested in battle with another story. And that's some consolation to Brett's family. We can call it justice. There's quiet satisfaction, hard-earned, I think, from the police. Their years of toil on the case have borne fruit. Their disclosure failures didn't destroy the case. The jury agreed with them. They got their man. Mr Big was vindicated. Or was it? Remember, the prosecutor didn't really rely on it during her closing. She said, I'm not going to tell you what to think. Was the Mr Big sting vindicated? What are we to make of it now? Well, in fact, that's still a question for the courts. David Little is appealing, and he'll again be arguing that the Mr Big evidence should never have gone to the jury. And as we'll see, there are still some twists and turns left in this story. Mr Little meets Mr Big is an RNZ production, written and presented by me, Stephen Price, with support from Victoria University of Wellington and the Michael and Suzanne Boren Foundation. Justin Gregory and Katie Gossett are the executive producers. Tim Watkin is the executive producer of podcasts and series for RNZ. Thanks to sound engineers Blair Stagpool, Phil Benge, Mark Chesterman, Rani Powick and William Saunders. Jeremy Ansel and Steve Burridge are the Auckland and Wellington operations team leaders. Music composed and performed by Ebony Lamb and Graham Antler. Images by Ebony Lamb. Artwork and design by Jared Bishop and RNZ. You can listen and follow all RNZ podcasts at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.